Don't you walk away from me when I'm talking to you. Give it a rest, Professor. I was technically still in command. I am commander of this mission. Look, no offense, but you're an egghead with an honorary rank. No one ever intended for you to handle combat situations. You handled it brilliantly, sending us crashing down here. Those aliens posed a continuing threat. I made a judgment call, and if I have to, I'll make it again. Hell, you of all people should understand that. If your father were here, he'd back My me up. My father is dead. Killed in one of those combat missions that you admire so much. My family is on this ship, and you will follow my orders, whether you agree with them or not. Is that clear, Major? Hey, save your speeches. I like you. But I'm gonna do whatever I think it takes to ensure the success of this mission, with or without your help. Is that clear, Professor? Am I interrupting something? Welcome to part two of our Lost in Space episode. Uh, but before we go into real talk, we're going to go through a shortened version of PP, our patron pitch, just so that we can focus on the biggest thing coming up for us and for the podcasting world, which is the live stream for The Cure. So first, just a quick rundown of our patron, because that's what we do at this on this segment. Uh Patreon.com slash Contrarian Prime. That's where you can go to find our tiers. Uh, you'll find lots of cool stuff. Uh, audio clips that didn't make it into the episode. Quick video reviews of movies that have been requested by our patrons. We have the the Rock Cena exclusive miniseries that are, that's going on there. Uh, yes. You get to you get to check out the the third part, the the CM Punk part for free. But if you want the other parts, you gotta give us at least a dollar. Our pre-recording notes and then. Contrarians After Hours, which, during the Friends Travaganza, it's going to become an extension of the Friends Travaganza. Uh, instead of uh, doing the usual stuff, which is plugging things that we've read or that we've played, that we've listened to, After Hours is going to discuss another movie in the filmographies of whichever friend we're covering uh, on that episode. So... For Matt LeBlanc, Alex, we're going to be talking about Charlie's Angels. And honestly, I don't remember. Are we? Did we decide on one of them? Or are we doing both? What's What's the deal here? I mean, I'm down for whatever, because you know I enjoy those movies. Well, I've never seen the second one. And I would feel weird watching the second one without refreshing my mind and watching the first one. So if, if you're okay with doing both, I'm down with doing both. We can just have a, a serious conversation <laughs> about the Charlie's Angels franchise and Matt LeBlanc's role in it. McGee's greatest contribution to the film industry is those yeah. movies. And Matt LeBlanc's freshest movie, according to the tomato meter in his in his filmography. So that's gotta count for something. So that's it. That's that's uh, our our very shortened patron pitch. Because what we really want to do here with this little bit of time before real talk is tell you in detail what we're gonna be doing during the live stream for the cure. What does hope mean to you? Hello, everyone. My name is Nick, and I am the host of the annual live stream for The Cure, a charity live stream event to raise money for the Cancer Research Institute, which researches immunotherapy, training the body's immune system to fight all forms of cancer. Their mission, one that I believe in very, very strongly, is a future immune to cancer. And this year, for the sixth annual live stream for The Cure, I want to emphasize more than anything hope. Over the past five years, myself and amazing creators and partners from around the world have raised over $50,000 for this amazing cause. And this year, we're looking to add another $20,000 to that total. Please join me May 19th, starting at 9 a.m. Eastern for 45 hours of content over the next three days, as I'm once again joined by amazing creators from around the world to help fight for hope. Learn more or make an early donation today at LivestreamForTheCure.com. So, Livestream for the Cure runs from May 19th to May 21st. That's Thursday, Friday, Saturday. We are going to be on the last day, on May 21st at 4 p.m. Central Time. 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Mark your calendars, block that hour at least, so you can be there live as we're doing our segment. You want to be there because it's going to be very interactive. It's going to be very different from what we've done in past years. What Alex and I are going to be doing is we're going to be taking suggestions from, from the audience, from the people 
that are going to be right there. And uh, basically, you're going to throw titles at us. And we're going to do a little bit of a contrarian pitch on them based on their tomato meter score. Now, you can't just throw any movie at us. We're going to, we got to narrow the field. So we've narrowed it down to the filmographies of four actors. Alex, do you want to do the honors and, and say which actors we're doing? So we've come up with a distinguished list consisting of Robert De Niro, Kate Winslet, Denzel Washington, and of course, as can be deduced by those three, Cameron Diaz. <laughs> How else could you could you cap that list? Um, so yeah, just if you want to play along, all you do is uh, look up their filmographies. Just grab any title. If you if you know the Run Tomato score, even better. But if not, it doesn't matter. Uh, for the for the purpose of our live stream segment, we're not gonna bother with gray area scenarios. It's just if the tomato meter says it's rotten, then we treat it as rotten. If it says it's fresh, we treat it as fresh. You throw the title at us. It doesn't matter if we've seen it or not. Alex and I will do our best to just tell each other okay if this if we were to do this on the show yeah, i mean we... we can give an elevator pitch just based on what we can find quick on google exactly like with these four actors i think that at the very least we have heard of most of the movies and their filmographies so if i read a synopsis it'll jog my memory enough to i'm like oh yeah i've seen that trailer and then you know we can just we can do a, a mini like five minute contrarian episode on it where we just tell you what we would do on the show should be fun so, so just be ready. Show up with your with your smartphone and and just throw stuff at us. So we'll have uh, people reading the chat to us, so so we can keep up with it. But uh, it sounds like like it'll be fun. <laughs> I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> now, like we've done in previous years, because uh, the whole point of this is to to drive donations. So we want the contrarians to to have a good showing when it comes to uh, how much money we make for the live stream. So we're going to do four tiers once again during our segment. Uh, every time we hit one of the goals on one of those tiers, then we're committing to doing an episode on the show, or a very specific episode. Since we have four actors, each tier is going to represent one of the actors. So if we hit $50 in donations, we're going to do the infamous Kate Winslet, Josh Brolin romantic thriller maybe uh labor day directed by jason reitman he of uh juno and uh up in the air it's a fascinating piece of business yes uh and it's rotten in case you you can tell it's rotten so you know we'd be uh we hit 50 dollars. we'll put it on the on the main feed we'll do a full episode contrarian's corner and real talk about labor day if we hit a hundred dollars then that's cameron diaz's turn and we're going to do Being John Malkovich, which most of you can probably guess. It's uh, pretty high, super fresh on the tomato meter. So we'll do an episode on Being John Malkovich, which, okay, it's not quite a Cameron Diaz vehicle, but she's one of the most important characters in the movie. I think that there's that quartet. It's uh, John Cusack, uh, John Malkovich, Catherine Keener, and Cameron Diaz. So I, I think it counts as a Cameron Diaz movie, and it's a, a well-regarded one, so we'll have fun. Uh, pretending it's bad. Uh, so that's if we hit $100. We make it to 150 That's when uh, Denzel comes in. Alex, you, you championed The Bone Collector as the movie that we would do if we hit 150 Why? Well, it has, uh, one, an interesting cast in that uh, Angelina Jolie is the co-lead in it with uh, from 1999 crime thriller, <laughs> Ed O'Neill. Al Bundy himself is in it as well. <laughs> Luis Guzman, Michael Rooker, Queen Latifah. Can only hope Queen Latifah got the and credit. Bobby Cannavale, <laughs> Contrarian's Legend, is in there as well. Uh, but directed by Philip Noyce, who this would be continuing on with some tradition uh, from Livestream for the Cure from, was it two years ago we did Sliver? It is two years ago, yeah. Yeah. Sliver, of course, starring Tom Berenger, Billy Baldwin, and Sharon Stone was a film we covered. Uh, previously there so feels like it'd be a full circle thing it's, it's a small world after all uh and finally the, the biggest of the big we hit 200 dollars in donations we're gonna do goodfellas that'll be a robert de niro movie and you know we haven't done a scorsese movie since the early days of the podcast when we when we covered taxi driver so marty is due for a comeback so is robert de niro goodfellas seems like a, a good epic goal to, to aim for so two hundred dollars 
it's doable. Uh, you know how I know it's doable, Alex? Because we've done it before. <laughs> so I think it can happen again. Um, even if you don't donate, just show up. You add into the numbers of people watching the stream helps the stream be be more like rank better on the Twitch pages. So yeah, it, it just show up, support us. Uh, it's a lot more fun when when there's a lot of people there. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to seeing all y'all there as well. Yes. And now let's let's get back to the French extravaganza. Let's get back to uh, Joey Tribbiani. We should pulse blast their bases. A decisive strike now. My squadron is alert status and your rescue stunt was foolhardy, Major. I had a friend in trouble. So you endangered a $10 billion spacecraft. Disobeyed a direct order because of a friend. Yes, sir. I did. Sir. Sadly, Lost in Space, released on April 3rd of 1998, is not based on the track of the same name, Lost in Space, by the Misfits from the album Famous Monsters that came out the year after the movie. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> uh, I thought you were going to tell me that that was the name of the track at the end of the movie. No, no, no. Lost in Space, track number three, uh, a very divisive album amongst Misfits fans. Are you familiar with the Misfits at all, Julio? Uh, Iggy Pop? I'm just going to move on. Uh, <laughs> you're thinking of the Stooges, but uh, there you go. Close enough. Mis- you know who Danzig is, right? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Sigourney Weaver in Alien Resurrection. <laughs> uh, so yeah, Danzig was the Misfits back in the seventies, the and then Danzig had a falling out with the band. It wasn't just him. It was oh, what was it? Doyle von Frankenstein. Uh, Jerry Only, and I believe their drummer's name was Robo, uh, Danzig fell out with them and then went on to have a singles career, which was obviously very successful for him, where he turned out such tunes as Mother. Uh, but they found a new singer named Michael Graves and came out with an album in 99. But a lot of Misfits purists will tell you that Michael Graves' stuff doesn't count, despite the fact that um, a lot of their more visually successful stuff came at that point in time. Nowadays, everyone knows him for like fucking... Uh, where Eagles Dare, one thirty eight, that type of thing. But oh, I knew that I, I okay, I know that song. <laughs> there you <laughs> go, where Eagles Dare. Uh, but anyway, the point of that is famous monsters from October of nineteen ninety nine was the first Michael Graves album, and track number three on that was called Lost in Space, and it's based on the television show, not the movie, but the track. Like the lyrics are about you know, premise of the show, that type of thing. Um, so I was trying to figure out a way. I, I thought of that immediately, but I thought that album came out in 97, not 99. <laughs> so I was going to do my joke that I did for left behind, but it just didn't work out. Uh, but there's a song on there called Helena. That's based on the movie boxing Helena with uh, Bill Paxton. Uh, and that movie 17% on Rotten Tomatoes. So maybe we can do that in the future and I can make that joke work after all. Look, whatever it takes to make that joke work. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> but no, of course, Lost in Space, again, April 3rd, 1999, based on the television show that ran on CBS from 1965 to 1968. Uh, the show itself inspired by the 1812 novel, The Swiss Family Robinson. Uh, several actors from the TV show make cameo appearances in this. The robot is voiced by the homie who did the voice of it in the show. Uh, so that's nice. cool. Yeah. Budget of $80 million, uh, which I looked at just for my own curiosity, uh, equates to almost double that today. It equates to $141 million. So not a cheap film to make. Its box office return was shy of $140 million. Uh, it was viewed as a flop as it did not make its budget back based on its U.S. gross. Who got the biggest payday, Alex, out of that mm. cast? Yeah, I would hope Gary Oldman, but I know that ain't the case. Could have been LeBlanc, right? I mean, there's a pretty strong possibility that... Yeah, I mean, Friends definitely wasn't the phenomenon that it became, but it was, you know, we're in season four at this point in time. So, did that show start in 1994? 
<laughs> I always thought it was 95, but for some reason, the fact that it started in 94, like, blows my mind even more. Because that, you know, that's officially early, <laughs> mid-90s. Yeah. <laughs> it's crazy shit, man. Friends and Pulp Fiction, 94. Jesus. <laughs> New nightmare. Uh, Julio, the day before it was released was the premiere of The One with Rachel's New Dress. Frank Jr. and Alice ask Phoebe... Frank Jr. was Giovanni Ribisi, right? Yes. Ask Phoebe to name one of their unborn triplets, which leads to Joey and Chandler competing to get to choose their names. In the process, Joey argues that Chandler is a sissy name, prompting Chandler to consider changing his full name, (laughs) though he has an ulterior motive. Ross becomes paranoid when Emily and Carol's wife, Susan. <laughs> what? Emily and Carol's wife. Emily Susan. is Emily is Ross's British girlfriend. So Ross's British girlfriend and Car- oh, Carol is his ex. Okay. So Carol's okay. wife, Susan. Susan. Was she the blonde? Uh, Susan is the... Carol is a blonde. Susan is, I think, a brunette. Uh, but he gets paranoid when they spend time together in London, fearing that Susan would once again steal someone he loves. R- Rachel wears a revealing dress that is even sexier. and it- Oh, God. Rachel wears a revealing dress and an even sexier slip under it while dining with Joshua at his apartment in hope of finally sleeping with him. However, her plans go awry when Joshua's parents unexpectedly show up at the apartment. Was, this, was Joshua this anyone sounds- important? Uh, she dated him for maybe half a season, I think. Okay. It all sounds delightful, Alex. Uh, I remember that they end up uh, picking Chandler as the name for the baby. Uh, really? Yes. But then I think that the, the twist might be that the baby ends up being a girl. So <laughs> so baby Chandler is a girl. And that's it, like, haha, Because <laughs> Chandler is a boy's name, I guess. Uh, also... Uh, Giovanni Rubisi, like his wife, is um, Kitty from that 70s show. Oh, that's right. Um, Deborah Joe Rupp, I want to say. Yes, Deborah Joe Rupp. So, yeah, that was April 2nd in 1998. And Julio, I want, I would bet money that every commercial break on that episode was a TV spot for Lost in Space. As, <laughs> as an average of 21.72 million U.S. homes. Uh, U.S. viewers, excuse me, watched it for a uh, goddamn rating of 11.5. It's uh, pretty impressive stuff right there. So, do you think it was the same commercial every time, or did they like do three different cuts? Mm. You know, one is like the action-packed one where you see Joey turn into Iron Man and shoot uh, spiders. Another one is the romantic one where you see him trying to seduce Heather Graham. <laughs> Heather Graham, yeah. Who knows? But what I can tell you is that those 22 million viewers didn't go to see the movie uh, (laughs) for reasons that we kind of talked about already, and I'm sure we'll talk about here momentarily. Uh, Now, important to keep in mind for the context of this, as I said, they were in season four, so they probably would have been filming the rest. It was about halfway through, so... Matt LeBlanc was still filming his role for Friends while this movie was shooting, and he had to fly back and forth between uh, sets several times per week in order to do both projects at the same time. That's dedication, man. <laughs> Not quite the what we talked about with um, on our patron, Oscar Isaac, just having to walk across the studio to go do <laughs> Last Jedi and then come back to do Annihilation. <laughs> Gary Ullman guest starred in a couple episodes with LeBlanc, but director Stephen Hopkins had never seen an episode up until that point, which that I would believe that. <laughs> well i would hope that he watched them after you know it's like once you work with the guy wouldn't you watch at least a couple episodes of his show as a courtesy i you would think so unless he had like a piss poor experience but th- there it is i mean that's the the friends connection on it uh now julio before we get too much deeper into things going on here and just our thoughts on it 28 percent of rotten tomatoes financially critically a flop but you know that does mean there were some people that enjoyed this two hours and 10 minutes of whatever the fuck this is uh <laughs> what were those shiny red tomatoes saying about lost in space 
All right, shiny red tomatoes. Let's start with Kevin Carr from 7M Pictures, who says, I was never a big fan of the original TV show, so this movie didn't slay any sacred cows for me. Um, he is uh, He's on the same boat as we are, regardless of opinion. I mean, he was like, eh, I don't care. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Uh, Jeffrey M. Anderson from Combustible Celluloid says, Usually, Hollywood can't make movies that are as good as the best TV. So why not adapt bad TV shows into good movies? That's what they've done here with the new Lost in Space movie. Just burying the TV show. Also, that's a weird statement that they can't make movies as good as TV shows. Yeah, I mean, that's that is more of a hot take, I think, <laughs> on top of everything. Um, next, MV Moorhead from New Times says, The actors are good sports. The standout, inevitably, is Gary Oldman. Do you agree? Yeah. Gary Oldman's the standout here. I mean, he's having more fun than I would expect him to have on a movie like this. He, or he, he appears to, excuse me. Yeah, he's a good sport for sure. <laughs> I was Dracula. They give him shit and he has he does the most with it. Yep. And then let's close with Edward Johnson Ott from Nouveau News Weekly, who says, For cinematic junk food, it's tastier than you'd expect it to be. And I feel like we've had we've had the talk about cinematic junk food here and there, like fairly recently. What did we call mac and cheese? Was it a semi-pro? Yes, I believe so. <laughs> yeah, delicious mac and cheese, semi-pro. Would you say that this is delicious mac and cheese or, or even no. like average no. mac and cheese? No. What would it be if you have to compare it to any type of junk food? Uh, hmm. I'm trying to think of something that like the first bite is good, but then like you can't believe you're still eating it, like like old Rice Krispies, something like that, or like what's a Fruity Pebbles, the, the like a cereal that gets like soggy like immediately, something like that. <laughs> there you go. Uh, all right, so so how are we tackling this? How are we <laughs> actually? I. I, I'll tell you this, Alex. We close Contrarian's Corner with a plea from uh, somebody who was uh, more of a, a target audience than we were to eliminate us. And uh, it turns out that as of this recording, you know, five hours ago, our friend Ryan from Spit and Polish saw that uh, we were doing this movie. And he said, he tweeted at us and he said, I am so sorry for you. In the original show, they have to shift Dr. Smith from baddie to funny guy because they understood if they kept him as just that, he'd be an unbearable and boring character, which is something the film didn't figure out. So it sounds like Ryan likes the show. And he didn't like that they changed uh, Dr. Smith into uh, an all-out villain. Holds a kid at gunpoint. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I have a problem with that, but I, I don't have any attachment whatsoever to the original Dr. Smith or the TV show or, you know, the, the, the property in general. So any changes, I mean, I just take them at face value. I'm not comparing it to anything. So I don't have that problem, but... Maybe, you know, there are a lot of people like Ryan where they're like, you know what? The TV show was better. <laughs> the TV show got it. And this one is a bad adaptation of a TV show. It's uh, also just a bad movie. I was about to say, I, I think that we're in the maybe privileged position where we can just judge it independently of what it does as an adaptation. So tell yeah. me why you think it's a bad movie. It just like goes on forever is one thing. And it's just... It seems kind of directionless, and well, they're lost, Alex. Uh. <laughs> it seems like they had like the idea of like, oh, here's the big beats we're gonna pull off, and the visual effects range in quality so dramatically. Like, uh, I mean, you know, that's one of the things with visual effects and CGs. Like when it's dark, it's easier to pull off. And like a lot of the external things, and like the opening CG, I'm like, hey, this ain't bad. Mm -hmm. And when they're showing the city and wherever they are uh, in 2058, I'm like, this looks pretty good. But then, you know, Smarf and um, oh god, Mecca Oldman just looks so <laughs> bad. So, and that's you know, you mentioned the Mummy. It's kind of that thing. You can't necessarily hold that against the movie 
but there's really no narrative. Like there's not really much that I'm understanding what it's trying to say. Uh, and then on top of it, the only thing it does seem to want to say is like, Hey, be, you know, if you're a dad, be nice to your son, pay attention <laughs> to his science. Fa- it's like just so milk toast and just the same shit. We had seen so many times, even up until 1998, like when that little kid's like, like anything I do matters to him. I was just like, Oh God, this is what this is going to be. And again, I'm sorry. I think his name is Jack, Jack Johnson, not the uh, incredibly important boxer from the the turn of the 20th century that <laughs> broke down many racial barriers. But uh, this kid's not good, man. He's and we've talked about many times before on here about the um, not conundrum, but just you know wanting to make sure that. You know, you don't want to pick on child actors. And we've used the example of Jake Lloyd before, someone mm-hmm. who, like, that shit clearly, like, ruined his life. I don't even know how, how he is today. I hope he's good. So you don't want to be too mean about it, but it really can derail a movie you're doing. And everyone else in this does a pretty respectable job. Even Lacey Chaubert, she's kind of, like, doing her, like, I'm a young girl acting type thing. Uh-huh. But at the same time, it's like, okay, it works for her character. And this kid, I don't know if he knew someone or some shit, but like there's parts where I'm just like, man, it just, it doesn't work. And it just derails all the momentum. And then even more so, it makes these moments that are supposed to be emotionally poignant, just kind of like eye roll inducing or just kind of like, okay. Um, <laughs> and, and then when you do have something interesting in the movie, they'll be like, it's not expanded upon. Like, why Why does Gary Ullman want to kill these people? Like, why does he want to stop this? Like, I know they kind of use, like, the uh, the Thor thing of, like, the one-sentence explanation, but <laughs> it seems like there's a much more interesting movie there. And then there's a part, like, where Gary Ullman's just kind of, like, gone for, like, 15 or 20 minutes. And they don't explain, like, where he went, and it just shows him in his, you know, his jail cell. He's, like, you know just kind of working by himself it's like okay it just seems like anything that's interesting in this doesn't get explored enough and it seems like it was made with the lowest possible opinion of its audience of just like here's just this really simple movie for you to lap up and be you know you can tell by the presentation of it they thought this was going to be some big blockbuster but i mean they they set up a franchise that's it doesn't surprise me that they were signed up for three movies a huge production. This movie occupied twelve separate sound stages when it was being filmed at London's uh, Shepperton Studios, and yeah, as I mentioned, everyone involved signed on for three movies, but uh, didn't come to that. I guess the biggest claim to fame this movie can have in its history is uh, it was the first film of 1998 to top Titanic at the box office. I wonder what the what the percentage of the drop in box office was like the following week. If you guys, uh, we do a very meticulous breakdown of that information uh, as far as Titanic's box office supremacy in our Avatar episode. I recommend you go check that one out. Yeah, yeah, Alex, Alex went deep, but no, I meant like the drop for Lost in Space. Oh, yeah. you'd have to think it was probably like sixty or seventy percent. Yep, <laughs> that's yeah. what I was thinking. Uh, Kenneth Branagh and Tim Robbins were interested in playing the part of Dr. Smith before Gary Ullman signed on. But Gary Ullman uh, was the first person to be cast because he was excited to be in a family film. So there you go. You can tell that he's excited overall, I think. He's Uh, the one guy having fun. And I'm sorry, Julio, I I know I'm droning on here. So No, no, no. I I like the droning. I like it because, you know, you're helping me flesh out my thoughts as as you usually do. (laughs) Uh, I was going to say, I feel like we've seen Tim Robbins play a version of this character, so I'm glad that he didn't get the part. He was in a superior film uh, called Howard the Duck. Exactly. I was like, I think that he would have hit some of those notes, even though on the surface they're very different characters. I think that he would have ended up doing something similar. And it's like, why? You know, you already, you already did it once, and it was it was good. Um Kenny Brana, I mean, I don't know. I, I like that they went with Oldman. Here's my hot take, Alex. And that is that I think that that little kid, little Will, he does better than Matt LeBlanc in this movie. I think that Whoa! objectively, Matt LeBlanc is the worst performance in this movie. What? Sincerely. Wow. <laughs> yeah. 
I well, think he is, and I like Joey. I like Friends. I I think that he's he's a funny guy, but action hero Matt LeBlanc was not. It really is like I said at the end of Contrarian's Corner. It feels like a parody of a movie, like you know, like like when you see his character act in in the show in Friends, he just doesn't deliver the lines in a way that meshes with anybody else. Like everybody else feels like a real actor and he feels like like joey on a set it's it's crazy like i and i didn't think this like the first time i watched the movie like this was like my big revelation when i was watching it. i was like man he really sucks it's just you know because they're trying to he's he's half the movie he's you know the, the co-lead he's supposed to be the the action hero and uh man william hurt acts circles around him gary oldman acts circles around him <laughs> Heather Graham, like no matter who he faces off against, it's just it, it just exposes him as somebody who was not the right fit for this part. Do you disagree? Do you like him in this movie? Uh, I think the kid's awful. Uh, that's kind of why I was surprised <laughs> to hear you say that. What I think of Matt LeBlanc in this is that it's the tale of two Matt LeBlancs. <laughs> the parts where they're like, hey, just be Joey. Like, that part I called out is just, like, him being Joey, where he's like, the planet is crashing around us, like, when he says that to him. But when he tries to do the shit in the beginning, and, man, especially when he does the, that's right, sir, I disobeyed those orders, sir. Yep. Like, when he's, like, talking to the general or whatever, it's like, brother. Uh, <laughs> so, I agree with you that he's not good, and... I agree that it's not a surprise that he didn't become an action superstar. At the same time, he he is not the worst part of this movie. But see, it's like it's like the Miko Hughes going back to Miko Hughes, the Miko Hughes thing where uh, the Miko Hughes principle. Yeah, the Miko Hughes principle. Like I think that because Don West is a bigger part of the movie than Will Will Robinson, I think that that's also what makes it worse. I think that the character they did something really smart. And I don't know if this was because they were like, man, this little kid can't carry the emotional climax or or it was just like a, a happy accident. But it works to the movie's benefit that they introduce Jared Harris as an older version of the character because then you get good acting, you know, between Will Robinson and John Robinson, you know, father and son. But now the son is played by Jared Harris. So you really get, I, I think, a really good emotional beat when... They reconcile, and then later he pushes him out the wormhole or whatever, and uh, says goodbye. It, that you're not gonna get that with him acting with the little kid, and so I like that either intentionally or accidentally. The story found a way to to give us uh, good acting for that emotional climax. Uh, so yeah, no, it doesn't bother me. I mean, you know, he's then again, maybe it's just that my opinion of most kids in movies is pretty low to begin with. So this was just kind of like par for the course. I'm like, oh, genius, precocious kid that is going to kind of like save the day, you know? He's like, he's just like the kids in Jurassic Park, the kids in like any of those, you know, 90s movies that are. Uh, so I was just glad that he was never, he never took over the movie. So yeah, I, I don't think that, I don't think he's good, but I don't think he does as much damage to the movie as Matt LeBlanc, who you're right. I mean, there are times where it's like, as, as a Joey beat, some things he does work, but but Joey's not supposed to be in this movie. <laughs> so even when he when it's playing to his strengths, I don't think it works. The planet is breaking up around you. Here's some shit. How much did he get paid? <laughs> Jared Harris plays adult William Robinson. All of his dialogue was dubbed over to sound more American. Man, <laughs> my praise for his accent was 100% honest in Contrarian's Corner. <laughs> so who dubbed him? I don't know. It doesn't say. Matt Fucking LeBlanc. Jay Leno. <laughs> Man, he's got a sting. Yeah, not, not as bad as this. Blarp was going to be an animatronic puppet. Except the puppet didn't look real enough, so it was replaced with CG. Because that thing looked real as shit. <laughs> oh, man. Who made that call? Is that on Stephen Hopkins? Lacey Chaubert's agent didn't want some fucking animatronic puppet <laughs> on his uh, meal ticket. 
and also, I didn't know this. Heather Graham was dating Stephen Hopkins during filming. What? I mean, Heather Graham's great, so I'm not going to even be like, that's why she got the role. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not what I thought. I was just like, is that why, you know, he was distracted and <laughs> couldn't make a better movie? <laughs> I mean, she definitely has the least of any of the characters to do. Like, that, she's literally just there so that Joey gets to kiss somebody at the end of the movie. Yeah. It's so weird because the movie, it's a little bit of what I was saying in, in Contreras Corner. The movie, in a way, tries really hard to establish every character in in including you know the three women as very independent and smart and strong-willed and all that stuff but then <laughs> despite all that when it comes down to it yeah the heather graham character her big story in the movie is her relationship with with joey and it's like really <laughs> why couldn't she be you know part of the 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 people that go out to to explore uh you know the the shimmer you know, like that's a on my notes. I have like my one real talk note is like the the third act is a sausage fest. Mm-hmm. You have two Doctor Smiths, you have two Will Robinsons, and then you have uh, you know William Hurt and Matt LeBlanc, and then the, even the robot is a dude basically, uh, and you have two of them. So, I mean, at this point, you know, we can look at the nineties and go like that was another time, <laughs> but <laughs> for a movie that really. That had the talent, uh, uh, you know, and had the setup to have these female characters do more. It's just really weird that they really don't. Though I think that Mimi Rogers does have the best scene in the movie. I really like it when she shuts him down. I guess LeBlanc and, and Hurt are just going at it. And she just puts a stop to it. I, I thought that that was pretty cool. No, really. I think you two should go ahead and slug it out. I mean, here we are, stranded on an alien world, and you boys want to get into a pissing contest? Please, go for it. I'll have Judy down here in a heartbeat to declare you both unfit, and I'll take over this mission. Now, I don't want to hear another word from you. Is that clear? Maureen? Not another word. Yeah, she sadly also doesn't get much else to do. But, that's uh, it. That, that's her moment. Yeah. yeah, yeah, and she definitely takes advantage of it, so. Um... Yeah, it's just it's boring, and it's all the trappings of like some of these ninety movies we've discussed. You know, it what it made me think. It's funny you brought up the Mummy because I thought of that too. It made me realize how good the Mummy is. Yeah, because like you know, it seemed like a wave in the late nineties and early two thousands of these just kind of very transparent attempts just to make something big and loud. And, you know, thinking that it would launch this, a, a brand. <laughs> and uh, we talked about this with Battle, uh, is it Battlefield or Battleship Earth? Battlefield. Battlefield Earth. Now, that's a little bit different because of some of the, you know, more political leanings of its story, what have you. But same type thing like this, just pumping out the toy line. I'm sure there was a video game, you know doing everything you can to appeal to kids and just kind of like, here it is. This is, No, this is what you're going to go see. And I mean, it's, you know, we've come back to that now. It's a little bit different in that it's just kind of controlled what you're going to go see and what you're going to like. But uh, it's an interesting time period to look at these types of movies. And this one more so than, you know, Battlefield Earth is obviously just what comes to mind. But it seems like some of those parts in it are genuine and there's an attempt from some of the people involved to make something worthwhile, but it just, when it's over, it's like, God, what a fucking waste. You know, wild, wild West is another one <laughs> that, th- that might be like one of the biggest offenders of what I was just talking about. But yeah, um, well, I, I've never seen wild, wild West. I like, I've never seen it beginning to end. Every time I catch it, I'm like, I don't know that I want to sit through this on top of everything that I've heard about it. Uh, I wouldn't say that about Lost in Space. Uh, I don't think it's a good movie, but I think that it's going to land more on the the space of guilty pleasure for me because I... Wow. I know. Okay, so I just spent, you know, several minutes trashing Matt LeBlanc's performance. But at the same time, it was one of the things that kept me the most entertained during the movie. And you know, I mean, listeners know, we're not really into the whole, like, so bad it's good, like... 
avenue of entertainment you know like usually if it's bad it's bad but there's something uh almost hypnotic about seeing his performance stacked against william hurts and gary Oldman's and mimi rogers and everybody you know so i find it you know i find that kind of entertaining and i like some of the ideas of the movie you're right like there is no it doesn't have a, a strong enough direction to really make you feel like like the movie's about something but i find some of the little things like the nuggets interesting like this this idea that the william hurt character is a workaholic right okay well that's that's a trope we know that but when you're a workaholic because you're trying to save the planet like i think that that adds like a little wrinkle right it's like yeah, I'm sorry I can't go to like my kid's science fair, but by the way, the planet is going to die if we don't get this done. So I thought that that set up like an interesting conflict. Like, you know, you, uh, you know, that classic Star Trek line about like, you know, the needs of the many versus the needs of the few and making that decision, making that call. And that's okay if at the end of the movie you want him to end up saying, okay, well, I choose my kid after all. But but make it hard for him. You know, the movie kind of abandons that idea because in the end it's just it's just something more simple. Uh, like, you know, I think it's really interesting when they set up that that moment at the end where he tells Matt LeBlanc, you go because objectively you are the best choice they have for survival. I'm like, that's yeah. an awesome moment. But it's only awesome if if he's right. <laughs> <You know? laughs> but then the movie literally rewinds the clock so that it doesn't matter because they both get away. You know, the, it, if your if your movie's about people making these difficult choices, then let them make those difficult choices instead of giving them a way out from making those choices. But I like you know those little moments because there's there's a couple times I want to say, and I'm not 100 percent sure because I was I was writing down notes and I looked up and I'm like, did that just happen? And, and I wasn't gonna rewind the movie when they're uh, before they make the jump, right? The ship is heading towards the sun and they're like struggling to get power. And so William Hurt and Matt I Blanc, legit laughed out loud when the ship exploded. He just like watched everyone die. I was just like, <laughs> what? Okay, no, but I'm saying at the beginning, at the beginning, the first jump that they do you know like dr smith just like woke them up they they're and they're heading towards the sun and uh before they they finally decide that they're gonna do the jump they're trying to just find a way to get enough power to fly away from the sun and so they start taking power from everywhere and uh in the meantime heather graham is in like med bay with the doctor and and her mom uh, because you know she was stuck in the cryogenic mm. pod and you know they're trying to resuscitate her Anyway, it looked to me like William Hurt made the conscious choice to take the power away from the from the sick bay so they could have more power on the, you know, the engines. Uh, because he even like I think he looks and he says Judy, as in like he's thinking, that's right, she's in the she's in the sick bay. And then he's like, fuck it. And then he takes the power off. Because, <laughs> you know, uh, Gary Oldman and Mimi Rogers are kind of like trying to resuscitate her, and then the power goes off because he just took the power. So it looked like William Hurt consciously took the power away from the medical facility that was trying to save his daughter's life. He made that call. He made that tough decision. It's like, she might die, but we need to save the ship anyway. So that never, if that's really what happened, and I think it's what happened, that's what it looked like, it never gets addressed later. Like, I would have liked Mimi Rogers to come up to him and be like, did you take the power off the sick bait while we were trying to save Judy? And then him, you know, presenting his argument. It's like, well, we're, we're all going to die anyway if I didn't do that. But it never happens, you know? So I just find that there's there are these little moments that are potentially interesting. And then either Akiva Goldsman was not interested in exploring them more or the studio decided to just soften the edges of, of the characters, which is a shame, you know, because I, I think that they could have... They have good actors, you know, William Hurt, Mimi Rogers... Uh, Gary Oldman, they can pull off that stuff. Uh, Heather Graham. So. But those things are enough to make it watchable for me. So I didn't hate it the way that you hated it or the way that you disliked it. Yeah, hold on. I, I didn't hate it. <laughs> yeah, I know. You didn't hate it. You actually think Joey's funny. Yeah, and the, some of the visuals are good. And it's like little things, man. You know, there's things about this that uh, I can't have anymore. I just love all the parts where... Um, 
they're like programming things on the ship and this little deck will pop up and it has these discs in it that they take out and like move yes. all real things, all practical things. And there was some bad green screening in this. So, you know, this movie's kind of, you know, in uh, a half and half as it were for me. But at the same time, I, I dig that and I dig the costuming and I dig the attempt to make it look different and not just make it all look like just bullshit set in modern time. Mm-hmm. And, the score is really good. And, and, you know, it's just, it's been so long since I've seen a movie like this that has this like score that, um, accents wonder and whimsy. Like, you know, the, the um, I, we joked about it when we did Ed game, the, the Avengers theme song is a banger. <laughs> it's a fucking, it rules. And like the music they use in those movies, are great for you know what they're the mood they're trying to establish, but the mood they're trying to establish is like dark and brooding and yeah. you know and with this like the part where um uh Gary Oldman's like running around the ship panicking and it's like he's trying to override I think it's that part. It's either that or like when he is a stowaway and he's on there and he's like sabotaging. But there's something where Gary Oldman's like running around and then it's like, you know, this orchestral music and then the like when he's like stepping, there's a a flute or like a wind instrument of some sort in the background. It's like, like as he's just kind of marching along and, you know, I'm sure there's movies out there that exist with that still, but it's, it, I was kind of, I found myself nostalgic in parts of this movie that, that I've never seen before just for like a bygone era of filmmaking. And so I don't know who to put the blame on. Um, it didn't sound like there was a a ton of studio meddling. It just seems like it, they thought it was going to work and it didn't. I think that's what it came down to. And then from my vantage point, the movie's just not good because it seems unfocused. And it was just kind of like, we'll wow them with what we've got here. And then they'll have to come back for the second one. And then then we'll figure out what we're going to do as far as an actual plot goes. Uh, as much as I love time travel, I I think the movie would be better if they had just, just do the time travel in the sequel and just find something else to do with your premise you know it's like they're lost in space they don't need to be lost in space and then on top of that be lost in time because that is mm-hmm. you know that's its own thing and that's I think way that too it, much for your first movie yeah yeah it, it gets it gets it gets way too complicated in that final act because there's a lot of explaining that has to happen and a lot of you know I, I i understand that there is a it makes it gives you that shortcut to where you can resolve the the conflict between will and his dad because oh well through time travel you know they can they can figure it out and, and like i said i appreciate that they gave jared harris a chance to kind of hit those emotional beats with with uh william hurt but they needed to streamline it you know the movie's lost in space it should have just been lost in space and then yeah you can just go crazy in the sequel i also found it sacrilegious that they flew through the sun that of course is only <laughs> for gene gray to do uh when she <laughs> is in possession with the Mkron crystal because it's the only place she can take it to where the galaxy will be safe forever. Um, there's someone listening to this to be like, what in the absolute fuck is he talking about? <laughs> I watched Dark Phoenix and it was not like that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's that's on you, buddy. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's a really good point to over-complicating shit in a movie like this that... Uh, it's just unnecessary. But since you brought it up, according to uh, Goldsman, if this movie had received its planned sequel, it would have been about the Robinson family making it to Alpha Prime. However, they discover that Alpha Prime is already populated with humans because they previously went through a wormhole in the first movie that sent them into the future. <laughs> there would also have been a subplot with Judy creating a cure for Dr. Smith to prevent the spider infection from turning him into Spider Smith, and Penny ended up receiving the same color changing abilities as Blarp. What? <laughs> that sounds like a turn of the millennium thing. Just it'll be funny. Kids will love it. She changes colors. And then like she's in the mirror and she's like, What is happening? And then like some forty one or blink one eighty two starts playing. <laughs> she's a different color every time she records a new uh video blog. Hey man, she was an influencer. Like yep. she, she it looked like she had her own like uh streaming service. It was like Penny Vision <laughs> or something. But you know, one thing I do want to give compliments, uh props to them about on this is that um 
they didn't overdo anything to alienate the audience in terms of like, hey, remember this from the show? It's based on the show. It's based on the characters, but it's nothing like we see with a lot of these movies that are based on adapted, you know, adapted from previous materials where it's a wink and a nod. Remember this? You, you remember this? Oh, you remember this? Uh, where like, you know, a lot of your audience has no idea what the fuck they're just coming to see this movie. So I give them this movie credit for that. Like I said, I was reading, there are little things in there sprinkled in through for fans, but it's, uh, it walked. So land of the lost could run and land of the lost is (laughs) fucking fantastic. So I, I give it props for that. Also rotten. If I'm not mistaken. Oh yeah. People hated that movie and it bombed too. (laughs) Let's see. Uh, was it, did it get any Golden Raspberry nominations? No, but it did get several of the Stinkers Bad Movie Award nominations. The hell is that? I don't know. So I like I the BAFTAs, but for uh, <laughs> for bad movies. <laughs> Looks like it ran from 78 to 2006. And uh, this would have been, what, 98? So let's see. Uh, it was nominated for Worst Director for Stephen Hopkins in the same field as he got game by spike lee <laughs> the avengers by jeremiah uh Shishik, bob spires for spice world come on now and uh arthur hiller for an alan smithy film burn hollywood burn who won uh the avengers which i've never seen but i've heard is pretty legendarily bad it's pretty bad i i saw it when it came out no worst actor. Oh, that's mean. They gave Lacey Chaubert worst supporting actress. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> She's doing what the movie asked her to do. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And uh, do you get anything else in here? God, there's so many awards here. The sequel no one was clamoring for. Most annoying fake accent, which went to Adam Sandler in, in The Water Boy. So I can get down with that. It would be funny if they gave it to Jared Harris. Yeah, yeah. Most painfully unfunny comedy. Meet the Deedles. I don't even know what the fuck that is. Paul Walker's in it, apparently. <laughs> yeah, so there you go. Um, I don't appreciate the bad words said here about Spice World, though. <laughs> oh, Spice World won Worst Picture, in which Lost in Space was also nominated alongside Blues Brothers 2000, The Avengers, and that Burn Hollywood Burn movie. So I think the Golden Raspberry saw better. Like, we don't need to <laughs> shit on this. It, it received six Saturn Award nominations, including uh, Best Supporting Actor for Gary Oldman. Oh, I spoke too soon. It also received Golden Raspberry nominations for Worst Remake or Sequel, but lost uh, to the tie of Godzilla, The Avengers, and Psycho. <laughs> I would watch this movie before I watch Godzilla. Absolutely. Godzilla. You literally took the words out of my mouth. I would say <laughs> it's better than that Godzilla. That's uh, Roland Emmerich, right? Yep. Yeah. Yeah, this it's not bad. I think it's it's not good. But when it was over, I found myself just kind of scratching my head more than I did like having any to- like total resentment or, you know, disdain for it. Two hours thin is way too long. That was the Way the too long. Yeah. It there there I felt it, <laughs> you know. I'm I'm usually I like to think that I'm a little more tolerant uh, than you when it comes to that. Like I'll give them the extra ten minutes, but I was like, nope. Why? Like they, I don't remember what was going on in the movie, but I looked and I'm like, man, only halfway through. What the hell? Titanic, man. We were in that world. Jimmy Cameron was like, got to be two forty five, a tight two forty five to make people give a shit. <laughs> I did forget to call out this movie does start with the New Line Cinema signature. Uh, and so I was filled with warm and fuzzies that got me through like the first half hour of the movie. It's just like, <laughs> oh, this is great. Uh, and see, this is one of those instances where I know exactly what you're talking about because for some reason it actually came to mind. Like I saw it, I saw the little piece of film like kind of fall in place, and I was like, oh, that's right, Alex is gonna geek out over this. <laughs> and I did. Yep. So God bless. Uh, in the end. I hopped on Letterbox and gave this two stars. What that translate to from a perspective of a letter grade? I'm torn between a C and a C minus. I'm probably a C minus because the there's some intent there, and they did some 
fairly credible things for the time period and then also just things that age well for me like practical effects and shit like the robot which we didn't talk about was like real mm-hmm. uh that's awesome uh, the cg like where the kid becomes the robot not awesome um <laughs> so yeah it's not good but it's not a movie that like i would go out of my way to, to bash and like we just said there's if we worked hard enough and stayed up late enough tonight, I'm sure we could come up with a list of 100 movies we would watch Lost in Space before we watch them again. So C- minus for me, Julio. Where, um, where'd you settle on? Uh, I'm with two stars as well. The only difference is that I, you know, I'll give it the little heart that goes that you can put on Letterboxd. The two stars, I know it's a bad movie, but I, would, I wouldn't have a problem, like, watching it again. Like, probably not sitting down to watch it, but have it playing in the background look up every now and then and see what Matt LeBlanc or William Hurt are up to. That's, it's all right. It's, uh, it's like I said, a guilty pleasure, I guess. Mild guilty pleasure. And overall, I think, uh, uh, I know it's not representative of the best that Matt LeBlanc can do, but I, I think it's a, a good representation of his limitations. So I'd say it's, it's a solid, uh, solid chapter in the French Travaganza. <laughs> It's a great way to open it. <laughs> to show that we mean business. <laughs> so with that being in mind, with this being the opener, Julio, what's next? What's on deck? What's next? Okay, next we we have to do a fresh movie. Uh, and like we like we said, it's the actresses from Friends that have the fresh movies, uh, for the most part. So coming up next, we're doing Scream 2. That's the Corny Cox chapter, the Monica chapter. Scream 2 is is fresher than Scream 1, so so that's what we went with. Also, I've never watched Scream 2 all the way through, so good good opportunity yeah, that, for me to to take care of that. That blew my mind. <laughs> that will be an interesting discussion as it'll be the second Scream we've covered on here, and I might actually try to watch that newer one before we record on that. Oh, well, okay. Well, if you're going to do that, then I'm going to try to do that as well. But see, it's harder for me because I haven't watched 3 either, so I need to watch... Two, three. I I kind of had four playing in the background a while ago, so I, I I remember most of it. And then yeah, five, which I think I told you, I got spoiled on one of the big things that happens in the movie. And I'm like, in the oh. in the new one, in the new one, yeah. Okay. And I was like, oh, that sucks, because it was not even. I didn't go looking for spoilers. It was this this podcast that wasn't supposed to be talking about spoilers, and then one of the guys dropped a spoiler and they just didn't give a shit. They just, uh, cause you know, they could have edited it out, but they were more like, Oh, well, Oh, doesn't matter. The movie's been out for a week. I'm like, all right, thanks. Dicks. Yeah. So it's still, I mean, you know, I look forward to watching it and seeing what else happens, but yeah, I, I guess if that's the case, you should probably find three and watch that as well. Uh, it's really bad, but <laughs> if you've seen all the other ones, you know, completion is sake. Exactly. Exactly. So yeah, Scream 2, that's the next chapter in the French Travaganza. And on the After Hours, we'll be covering 3,000 Miles to Graceland. (laughs) Excellent. Yeah. Uh, Also, listeners, uh, if you haven't had enough contrarians yet, you can check out our latest appearance in the Spit and Polish podcast from the aforementioned Ryan. We watched yet another Australian movie. We watched Idiot Box, and uh, we went and discussed it over there. No contrarians corner, just pure real talk. I think 50% of that episode is just the four of us fawning over Ben Mendelsohn and just yes. his career and his performance. Uh, but overall, it was it was a fun recording as it usually is with those two guys, with Ryan and Bartek. And uh, yeah, Alex and I got to watch a movie that we didn't even know existed. So check that out. That's, that's another bit of fun contrarian's uh, business for you. All right. The Friends Stavaganza has begun and will continue to rage on for the foreseeable future. Julio, we're ready to take this home? Let's do it. All right. So moving into our perennial plugs, we want to start off by giving thanks to the festive years who provide our opening and closing tracks. They kick us off with Last Stand, take us home with Summer of 99. Be sure to head over to thefestiveyears.com for any and all festive years needs. Our friend and fellow podcaster Hans Rothgieser is the man behind our logo, behind all the graphics on our webpage, our merch page, our patron page. 
Uh, Hans is a very talented artist, as you can tell, and he's also an author. He's written a whole bunch of uh, fantasy books, zombie books. Uh, you can check out his work on his website, mildemonios.pe. That's M-I-L-D-M-O-N-I-O-S.pe. You can also contact him on Twitter, at Mildemonios, or email him at mildemonios at hotmail.com. You can tell him how much you like his work, how much you like his novels, or how much you like his podcast. He has a podcast about Peruvian current affairs called Nación Combi, and a podcast about economy called Marginal. Hans, thank you for all your support. And thank you to Miss Zoe Perez, the curator of our social media. Uh, if you haven't already, be sure to follow us on Facebook, facebook.com slash Contrarian Prime. And if you're on Instagram, we are as well, at Contrarian Prime. Uh, Zoe, on our Facebook page, will post some exclusive videos previewing upcoming episodes. And then over on Instagram, uh, interactive graphics, audio clips, uh, images, you know, previewing upcoming and released episodes that we have at the time. So, Zoe, we thank you for all the work you do for us and making our social media game look so purdy. And with that being said, that will wrap up this episode of The Contrarians, where we're right and you're wrong, and we will catch you next time. Yeah.